Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on today's episode, we'll be joined by Paul Brenner, the president of Audio Out of Home and chief strategy officer for Vibonomics. Paul has joined the show in the past, but it's been almost a couple of years, so he will rejoin the show to talk a little bit about audio out of home or in-store audio, what changes have taken place both at Vibonomics and in terms of in-store audio over the last few years, and he'll discuss his thoughts on major retailers' in-store audio platforms. In news, we'll talk about Hy-V, who made the news a few different times late in the month. And in our Looking Ahead segment, we'll talk about new capital entering the retail commercial real estate front and how that might affect retailers in the future. Well, it is a new year, so if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. But if you like the show, you can always give us a rating. Those ratings help others to find us and check us out on any podcast listening platform. Additionally, you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. I've been deficient in getting some of the pictures off of my phone over to late and working behind the scenes to upload those. So hopefully you'll see a few more Instagram uploads over the next couple of weeks as I kind of cleanse my phone for the new year, so to speak. Well, well, let's begin the show with that news from Hy-Vee as a leaked employee video and a report from the Des Moines Register indicates their desire to spread throughout the country beginning with four states. And in so doing, this regional grocer will be entering a very crowded southeastern U.S. grocery market along with Publix, who has steadily made inroads from their home in Florida further north, alongside mainstay Kroger in that region of the country and many others. One could have assumed some sort of southern expansion was on its way for Hy-Vee after they did open a distribution center, a new one in Nashville recently, that makes now three distribution centers for the regional grocer that has 285 locations, so it could be argued they needed a new distribution center regardless. But certainly the video that was leaked to media outlets and other information from the company late in December now confirms things. The video and the subsequent report, as I mentioned, first came out in the Des Moines Register. Des Moines, of course, the home base for the company and the Register, a great resource for all things High V as they seek to expand. So the 285 locations High V has currently, that's behind the likes of Publix, who has been expanding by leaps and bounds northward over the last several years. But it is ahead of Wegmans, who is just breaking in on the precipice of triple digits in terms of the large regional chains with a loyal following that are seeking or have sought in the recent past to expand their footprint. Now for Hy-V over the past 10 years, they've experimented with a number of square footages and concepts, some of them smaller, some of them larger. They've kind of vacillated back and forth between larger square footprints over 100,000 square feet and then the smaller ones. But it does appear as though going forward, they're more set on the larger concepts. These concepts usually have restaurants, apparel, various other home goods in addition to their usual grocery mix. And in addition to being flexible with square footage, trying out new things there, they attempted a new health market concept. This was launched back in 2018 in the West Des Moines area. 
But that's actually proved somewhat unfruitful. Earlier this year, they noted plans to change the branding of this health market, which was a lower square footage location, to a wine and spirits concept for them. So they're trying out new things. They're not afraid to backtrack if something doesn't work. And I think what's remarkable about Hy-V is while they will go all in on testing out a concept, you see a lot less of the sunk cost trap there than you see for uh, the retailers. Maybe something to keep in mind as they expand. And expansion to this point has been very measured for Hy-V, and it's been more about building out their existing markets, new stores in places like the Twin Cities, for example. Currently, their footprint is as far south as Kansas and Missouri and as far west as South Dakota. They're based in Iowa. They, of course, serve Minnesota, several locations in Illinois and Wisconsin and so forth. They serve eight states in all. However, at least for the time being, according to the report in the register, they're looking to expand to 12 states with new stores potentially in Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Alabama, all presumably served by that new Nashville distribution center. They're eyeing at least 21 new stores in these markets over the next four years, and markets specified in the report included Nashville, Knoxville, Memphis, Huntsville, Louisville, and Indianapolis. And Earlier last year, I visited Knoxville, back in May, in fact, and we kind of posted on social media and noted during the show itself just how congested the grocery market is becoming there. And it's interesting that Hy-Vee sees Knoxville as a target because if you dig into Knoxville, you already have local mainstay food city, which is based just northeast of there. You have Kroger and you have Ingalls based out of nearby Asheville, North Carolina. It's just a couple hour drive and Ingalls, of course, with major market share, but They are a regional grocer that has also recently looked to expand, but more or less within their regional footprint. Then you have more recently Publix making a play into the market with a few different stores there. That's not including Walmart and Walmart Neighborhood Market, both of whom have a presence there. And Target, that also doesn't include specialty grocers such as Save-A-Lot on the low end of things and the Fresh Market and Whole Foods on the higher end, all of whom have a presence there in the metro area that isn't the size of something like, say, Nashville or Indianapolis. Generally speaking, you got to believe Hy-Vee is entering these markets with an eye on not only stealing market share, but also maybe pushing others out of business. There is such a high concentration of grocers in some of these markets. Knoxville certainly included among them. Knoxville, one of the most grocery-dense markets I've visited over the last couple of years. And you also have to ask the question about how exactly the expansions will advance. CEO Randy Etiker was recorded on the video as saying building out 50 stores in these additional southern markets will generate an additional $6 billion in sales. So you figure at least 50 stores, probably the benchmark for them. He sees growth opportunities for the next 25 years in the region. And we've mentioned Typically for Hy-Vee, expansion is slow and measured, and expansion into new markets has been somewhat, I would say, halting in other places. And a great example of this, if you want to look at a case study, is Springfield, Missouri. This is a market that Hy-Vee entered for the first time in 2011. They opened a store on a very, very busy thoroughfare at that time. Between 2011 and now, Kroger's Dillon's banner actually moved out of the market 
And there's been kind of a thinning of some of that non-Walmart competition there. They're only now setting up to open their second store in the metro, though, is Hy-Vee. So you look 10 years in between stores, a metro area nearing half a million people, and you just kind of wonder if maybe this wasn't a circumstance with distribution centers running thin. Maybe that new D.C. and Nashville will help to support the expansion in southern Missouri or in that Springfield market in a way that previous two D.C.'s couldn't. But you kind of wonder, as far as these markets that are mentioned, if you only open one or two Hy-Vees in Nashville, that's spreading it pretty thin in that particular market, especially since Hy-Vee has been so bullish on things like Omnichannel, on things like grocery delivery. In Des Moines, they even have a fulfillment center that's separate from any of their stores for grocery delivery and for grocery pickup. So I think that's very interesting in terms of how Hy-Vee historically has expanded. Maybe this new distribution center will help them expand a little bit more quickly. Again, you're looking at 21 stores over the next four years. It's benchmarked for around six to eight of these southern markets. And it's also worthy, I think, to note which markets Hy-Vee isn't planning on expansion into. One could argue that the list certainly included in the Register article wasn't comprehensive. Maybe they'll double back on some of these markets. But you look at St. Louis as an example. That wasn't explicitly mentioned as a market, but it's a market that would be in, theoretically, the wheelhouse of that Nashville distribution center. It's served by local chains Deerberg, Chinooks, and a handful of Ruler Foods stores, which is a Kroger banner, as well as the usual national suspects of the Walmarts and Targets of the world. But St. Louis certainly seems more open than, say, a Knoxville. And having visited both of those cities in the last year, I can tell you Knoxville has far higher grocery density. Another thing, too, is Hy-Vee on the northern side of things. They seem to be staying away from northern Indiana. Some markets like Fort Wayne, as an example, that are served primarily by Kroger and Meyer. They haven't made an entry there. Even Springfield, Illinois, which is currently right in their service wheelhouse, that's kind of been leapfrogged in these plans. And you wonder if at some point in time they're going to venture back north or going to backfill in the northern states or if they're going to leave those be for the time being so that they can focus on these southern markets. So a lot going on here in terms of this expansion for Hy-Vee. And really, this is a story worth keeping an eye on over the next two to four years, if it'll turn out like their health market concept and they'll backtrack on it, close the stores, or maybe sell some of them off, or if they'll be able to keep expanding and go head-to-head against an operator like Publix, who is very much a regional grocer like Hy-Vee that has a huge following among their customer base, very well known for fresh food, in their stores, very well known for ready-to-eat food in their stores. Hy-Vee and Publix, this is kind of like the, the battleground where the southern and the northern meet there along that Tennessee line. Now, as an aside, Hy-Vee's increased security efforts were also noted in various media outlets this week. Hy-Vee is beginning a program to internally train armed security guards, many of them with law enforcement backgrounds, the company says, to take station in their stores. Now, not all stores will feature the armed security. In fact, Springfield, Missouri, that one store that they have opened there currently, that's noted as an omission from this particular program. But the differentiator between this program and other store security plans, or the typical store security plan that we're used to seeing, is that these guards will be trained by Hy-Vee internally rather than being brought in from a third party, such as 
Allied Universal, which is used in Walmart and several other retailers. Currently, Hy-Vee's guards are third-party employees or off-duty law enforcement officers, one of the two. And some media outlets are going so far as to report that this is a response to that organized crime that you see so much about in the news. Of course, many people arguing that it's not as big of a deal as some have made it out to be, or even looting. When you look a little deeper, it just appears as though the new internally trained guards will basically be serving in the same capacity as their third-party guards are currently. The training program, in fact, Hy-Vee says, has been developed alongside law enforcement partners. Much was made about the guards being armed with guns and tasers. However, again, not a substantial difference from their current platform. According to Christina Guyman, who is a Hy-Vee spokesperson, she spoke about this platform this week. The guards are going to have the same tools as their current guards have. So whatever the current guards have in a certain market, their internally trained guards will have those same tools. So this appears to include tasers in certain circumstances, handguns, body cameras, and so forth. This is, again, more about prevention than it is about responding to actual incidents as in-store security is in most marketplaces. And because hy is private, we can't say for sure whether shrink due to theft or looting has substantially increased over the last few years. But it seems, though, based on what everyone is saying from the company, based on what everyone is saying about this news story, based on even the video that came out that Hy-Vee produced about this, the main difference here is the company wanting a bit more in-house control over its in-store security than is currently the case. And it's also about branding, about having a consistent presence. That's something Hy-Vee has been very big on as they grow, not in security necessarily, but just as their stores are concerned in general, in terms of branding, in terms of presence. They want that consistency across their entire store chain. Might not be something they had really in the 90s. If you were familiar with the Hy-Vee stores, I certainly was growing up in the Midwest, but that's something that they have been consistently focused on and leadership has been consistently focused on. It seems this is more an extension of that than any actual metering up of their security presence in their individual stores. And so in that sense, I feel as though this initiative has almost been miscategorized in some media outlets that's out there. Well, that'll do it for us here in our first news segment of 2022. Coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Paul Brenner, the president of Audio Out of Home and chief strategy officer at Vibonomics. He is engaging. He's going to talk about audio out of home, of course, but more importantly, audio in-store, some of the decisions that go into planning audio in-store and some of the new things that Vibonomics and others are planning on rolling out, really the next frontier of in-store audio over the next several years. Hop on any large retailer earnings call these days and you'll hear a reference to a steadily growing category for them, non-traditional revenue. And there's one category in particular, or subcategory really, that has potential to not only drive non-traditional revenue streams for retailers, but also drive those traditional retail sales and enhance the in-store experience. We're talking about audio here, and it's been nearly two years since we last spoke with Paul Brenner, the president of Audio Out of Home and chief strategy officer at Vibonomics. He's joining us again this week to discuss developments in in-store audio during that span. Paul, welcome back to the show. Brent, thank you so much for bringing me back a second time. We're very excited to be here. Enjoyed it a ton the first time. And I was wondering first, for those that might not have listened to that 
previous interview, could you refresh us about what Vibonomics does kind of on the day-to-day and so the perspective that you bring in regards to the in-store audio? Yeah, the biggest thing that we wanted to change in this aspect of the grocery C-Store experience was really update a legacy experience. You know, it was bad audio that you couldn't really hear or the song choices were not very good. And also the monetization of it had been left behind. So our day-to-day is really passion about the retail experience, you know, bringing a shopper entertainment aspect to what they can hear. And then just really making audio and the in-store experience a part of the emerging retail media strategy. So we work a lot on the in-store experience for the shopper and we work really hard at convincing advertisers to put some money back into this media. And of course, one of your largest retailers that you work with, Kroger. So when you are walking through Kroger aisles and you hear Manchester Orchestra play on the loudspeaker, well, you know who to thank. But I was wondering, since we last talked to you, what are some of the main changes we've seen with audio out of home just in general over the past couple of years? Yeah, I think it's along the same lines of what I said our day-to-day is, you know, we've gotten better and better at the kinds of music to play, when to play it to reach the right audience. We've gotten a lot smarter about matching the audience on a per banner basis. While Kroger might be a huge company, you know, they have a lot of banners. I believe even where you are, there's a different banner, you know, than there is in, say, in L.A. or Chicago. And so we're always trying to improve the kinds of music. We're paying attention to the shopper feedback through social media. We're listening to the operators of the brands to give us feedback, always making it better. So that's been a behind-the-scenes change. But what that means is we've achieved, you know, 77% of our shoppers say they listen to the music that we play. And that's quite a change from last year. I mean, that's a big goal. The other side of it, from a revenue perspective, we've seen a very big change in the buying habit, particularly CPG. We're up to probably three, four X the number of categories that are buying with us. We're seeing them shift traditional buying habits out of just what was a default shopper marketing bucket to audio, programmatic, out of home, brand dollars. That's been a major shift over the last two years. And the big one for us was when we launched with the Trade Desk a couple of months ago and really brought that programmatic aspect to life. And that trend, although it's been the last few months, has been the biggest jump in interest in audio out of home for us. Now, in terms of that trade desk, I was wondering if you could go maybe a little bit more in detail as far as what that launch entailed and how you've seen interest kind of grow as a result of it. So, you know, if anyone out there on the listener side is, you know, thinking about what happened with digital out of home. So the transition from out of home to digital out of home was really about making it truly programmatic, an impression-based business, right? Tracking viewership and opportunity to see you know, likely to see, and then some kind of like a geopath who's tracking foot traffic and impression. So they really switch from like a view, a screen or a sign to like how many people can see it. And so what we had to do was implement our technology, which is similar where it used to just be a media player, you know, in a store playing spots. And that's what was purchased. When we collaborated with the trade desk, what we really fought hard for was the introduction of impression multipliers so that We can say, yeah, this is one media player at one King Supers in Colorado, but really because of foot traffic, it's X number of people can hear it. And so that was the battle we had was to establish that currency and have someone like Trade Desk. And we know other DSPs are going to follow them. We're already working on that. And then educating the buyer on what that means, right? So here's an audio impression 
that you might always think of as just a smartphone or a desktop or a home a smart speaker as an impression, we're actually an impression multiplier. So that's been probably the biggest change was getting that buy-in from the, we had the SSP buy-in, but the DSP buy-in and now educating the market on it. And so we talk about impressions, certainly, but there's a value to those impressions. And now that Vibonomics has been at it for a bit, I know that you have a little bit more data about when someone hears a particular marketing message in store in terms of conversions, in terms of how much more likely they are to purchase that product. What kind of data are you seeing in terms of customers really following through on that messaging? It's a really fun question to answer. And, and you know, we put, I would say, substantial resources behind that because you know, when you're a category creator and when you might say music in a store is not, I'm not category creating, but I am category creating it as a new way to reach people with technology and data and information. And you can think of it as lift, you know, straight measurement, right? Lift. And in that regard, we'll see anywhere between 22 to 50% incremental lift for the brand or for the product. And so that's an outcome, right? I mean, that's a result of a shopper. We've done projects with a sushi distributor where we increased households by 2%. That's a phenomenal number to think a 2% household market increase, you know, and if they continue to buy month over month, that's massive. But the biggest thing that we see is through our own research, and we use Suzy market research for our shopper behavior analysis. And we're seeing things like, you know, 41% of adult beverage buyers saying that the audio ad helped them or influenced their decision. We're saying, you know, 75% of people that hear our ad in the store are influenced to take action or change their buying decision because of it. So you've got measurement lift. We're doing, you know, case study after case study on that one. And then we're looking at kind of shopper behavior. And on both sides of that coin, we're seeing very positive progress. And that's such a big impact, it seems like, compared to traditional media, traditional audio. And I wanted to ask you about this because it really seems since we last talked, Vibonomics, I know you've done a great job in terms of partnering with retailers throughout the spectrum. But one of your more recent focus areas has been convenience stores and customers, when they go to a C-store, they might not be there as long as when they go to a grocer or a general merchandise retailer. How does the approach to that audio out of home shift when you're talking about a grocery store versus maybe a C store? You know, last time we talked, you know, I had told you we selected SafeGraph as an early partner, and that's the Orrin Hoffman company. They've exploded in the last two years with, with a lot more information on a location basis, a venue basis. And we've just really continued to grow that relationship and, you know, get better at isolating their data by location working with them on how to trend that. And we're super confident in that information that shows hour by hour foot traffic, right? And that foot traffic can be compared within a brand or a banner or a city, but also between a C-store and a grocery store. And, you know, we really look at that information very closely. We look at the dwell times through the day parts, and then we take our software, which is really built for programmatic algorithms, and we program an hour of a day to split time between the music, the messaging, and the advertisements. And messaging meaning there probably are some self-promos in there by the brand, you know, like buy one, get one free today or something like this, right? Or their own promo of their own brand. And so you'll see a comparison where because of dwell time and C-stores, there is more message frequency 
and a better blend of promo and ads versus a grocery store because, you know, dwell times usually three or four X longer than a C store. There'll be more songs than messages achieving the same frequency with the listener uh, and exposure and reach on a monthly basis. It's just, it's a better listening experience because people are there longer and we don't want to bother. We want them to tune in to the music and be helped by the messaging, not like ignore it because it's just a bunch of messages. It really comes down to dwell time and audience between the two, between C-Store and Grocery. Some great insights there as far as how often you might be interrupting that music and kind of the thought process that goes into it. You mentioned day parts, and that's something we talked briefly about the last time we met up, but I wanted to go into it a little bit deeper here today. What impact does Daypart have in terms of not only the music that's being played, but also some of the messaging that's out there? And how might you see the messaging change from, say, 8 a.m. to the 8 p.m. shopper? You know, it continues to be that translation for us, right, of we are not necessarily an app or a music service that gets to know, you know, Trent and what Trent listens to and how old Trent is, right, and kind of program music or identify things you might like along with the ads that target you the best. We have to rely on third-party information, and that information comes from companies like SafeGraph, Census Bureau information, information from our retailers, and then layering that in by day part. So that first party might be, you know, helpful in some ways and the others might be helpful in other ways. You know, you see a bell curve in a grocery store, 12P to 8P, are there peak hours? The diversity of the crowd is a lot more broad. And so we try to rely more on just the general data for the market. When you look in the morning hours, you'll typically skew towards a parent with children at home in the persona space, call it the soccer mom. You know, you might see it skew a little bit older in a certain hours. That'd be like 10 a.m. to noon. You'd have a slightly older audience, maybe 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. And then, of course, there's a younger crowd that comes after 8 p.m. So, you know, you kind of look at those day parts. Most of our impressions because of foot traffic are in 12 p to 8 p. So we try to be a lot more general and play a lot of music variety, all very noticeable, recognizable music. But you'll see a more variety in the 12 p to 8 p and then a little bit more specific to the age and the region outside of that time. One of the things you mentioned in that answer is that it is a two-way street. It's not just Vibonomics looking at data, churning out music for a retailer. The retailer accepts it and brings it in. You and I were talking before we started recording here about the input that retailers might have in terms of that music mix. What are some of the things that you might weigh in terms of inputs from a retailer as far as music is concerned and what type of input leverage, so to speak, do they have? We have a team here that mostly have an audio background, audio programming background. And so they're always watching trends and always looking at what's popular. We have audio experience managers. Their job is to make sure there's a communication path to the people at the retailer that have that opinion. Sometimes it's a top-down opinion. Sometimes it's a regional or maybe even a store-specific opinion. But we open the door to that feedback and we say, you know what, we've got 3,000 playlists for you to pick from. And they could range from you know, country and classic rock to blends to pop to lots of things. And a lot of times it's blends of all those things. And we'll establish that benchmark with the top company. We, we align with their brand. We try to match up a programming style to what they want their brand to be. 
you know, like Kroger wants something like an animated world, which means there's always movement, there's always activity, and they want the music to kind of reflect that. We activate it, and then we ask for the feedback. And I think, you know, we were talking before this started, and you mentioned me where you live, and I even told you, I said, that banner is one of the most active of giving us feedback. They know their shopper. They not request specific songs because we're a background music company because we can't fulfill like one-on-one requests, but they can give us feedback on, hey, can we get a little bit more country in the morning? Or, hey, can we get a little more classic rock in these couple of hours? And we tune to it. And then, you know, we respect that. And I think that's really why you get such high shopper engagement with our audio is that the local person knows their shopper. They're probably the same people all the time and they see how they're responding to it. And they're giving us that feedback from direct observation. So that's really been a helpful part of our learning through the year. To this point, we've mostly talked about best practices because let's face it, at least in my opinion, Vibonomics does it better than anyone else in the game. But I'm curious from your perspective, when Paul Brenner goes out to a store and experiences audio out of home, what are some areas in which you see for improvement for other retailers? In other words, what are retailers maybe getting wrong or misunderstanding when it comes to audio out of home? Oh, it's a fantastic question because I pay attention to it everywhere I go, you know, just thinking about what is it that somebody's not doing what we're doing or what's our advantage or where is our lead and we can compound on that. You know, I I think, you know, I go to big box stores, you go to Walmart, right? When I don't want to, but if I have to take something there and my kids, the first thing I always think of is I can never hear it in Walmart. I think they put no investment in their AV. It sounds horrible. Their PA speakers. I'm almost embarrassed that they call it in-store audio because you just can't hear it. And that's kind of one thing that we pride ourselves on is setting that up with the retailer in advance that you have to make that investment in quality AV and you have to make sure that it's always heard. So that's kind of one thing I always think about an improvement. Target, actually, they've rolled their own in-store audio out and it's louder. I've noticed that it sounds pretty good, typically, the stores I've been in, but their music selection's bad. It's covers, it's unrecognizable music. It doesn't, it just sounds like background noise. And we put a lot of energy and passion into picking music that people normally sing along with, that they recognize the tune very quickly. And, you know, I've walked around many Kroger banners around the country and watched people physically dancing, tapping their feet, shaking their head. And that makes me proud. That makes me realize that our job first is to entertain that shopper, improve the retail experience. And then beyond that, provide advertisers that shopper so they can reach them and probably have a bigger impact with their own advertising. Got to hook the shoppers first with the music. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned audio levels, and that's also something that we haven't necessarily touched on in the past. But how do you go about evaluating proper audio levels? Because I'm guessing you can't just pop into a store at 6 a.m. when no one's in there and say, yep, these levels work good. Because in context of, say, a grocer. 4 p.m. is going to be a lot busier than some of those other day parts. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we have a lot of remote monitoring of the volume outputs from our devices. So we can obviously adjust some of that volume from our main location, our main headquarters. They're all IoT devices, so we can control anyone at any time. But, you know, once it hits the amplifier and some speakers, then it's really up to the local person. We rely on personnel feedback. We rely on, you know, daily checklists approach to that where we can make sure that it's heard. That's, you know, there are definitely some times where we have to go back and revisit it. But I will say that that's an area we just want to keep getting better at 
We're in discussions with a couple of different companies to even be a little more active than we are. I don't feel like typical of, say, a Nielsen or someone like that who's sample-based. I don't think that really helps us. We really have to be able to listen to just about every location on a weekly basis. And again, that's what we've learned compared to our competitors. If we're going to be this respected as a retail experience provider and guaranteeing impressions are delivered and heard, we have to take it that seriously. And so I'd say we're pretty good at it right now, but there's always room for improvement. You kind of previewed it a little bit with the audio levels discussion there, but we've talked a lot about what's happened the last few years with audio out of home. What's the next frontier? What are you most excited about developing here over the next few years in retailers? Yeah, I think we have the experience right. You know, I think we've got the market fit. You know, we have some scale coming that I can't really announce yet with new grocers, new C-stores. So I think, you know, to make audio out of home even more successful, there has to be scale, more scale than what we have. And we know that. And that's something that's, you know, job one for us. So that a buyer that wants to invest something across their entire portfolio, a candy or a home good, there's got to be more coverage. And I think it's really kind of bifurcated between a couple of different companies right now and our competitor, well, not really competitor, someone that does it kind of like us. They're not even programmatic. They're very antiquated and they don't do any of these things that I'm talking about when it comes to improving the product. So I think the scale is one. The other is, you know, retail media has grown a lot. And I'm sure you've had a lot of podcasts about that over the last couple of years. You know, we're fighting really hard to make sure that the in-store audio, in particular audio out of home, is a consideration as part of retail media. I think the way retail media was defined and the market investment is so specific to e-commerce and websites, on-site, off-site, you know, they're not going to close their stores. The store, the feet in the aisles, the loyalty card data, you know, the retail experience should be part of that retail media investment. And I think that's the next frontier for us is, you know, our involvement with Path to Purchase, IAB, the DPAA. I mean, we have a vested interest in ensuring that in-store is part of that retail media growth. And it should be because it can be and is a part of the success for a media plan, not just a bunch of e-commerce and apps and offsite, onsite, but also that final path to purchase where you've got people in the place where the product's being sold. So that's scale and retail media growth are probably our two forward thinking ideas. Well, I'm very much looking forward to seeing that expansion over the next few years. If nothing else or for no other reason, then I'll be able to enjoy my in-store experience that much more when you do roll out a little bit further. Well, once again, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time joining us today and catching up a little bit on Audio Out of Home. Grant, thanks for your time again. That was, this was a lot of fun as usual. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, as always, it's great to have Paul join us. And I said it during the interview. I'll say it again. I feel like Vibonomics does it the best of anyone that's in the game. That's why we have them on the show to begin with. Really a great resource as far as driving that non-traditional revenue. And I encourage you, next time you're in a Kroger store, maybe just pay a little bit more attention. Or next time you're at a C-store, just pay a little bit more attention 
to that audio, to the interruptions in the audio where those take place. And I think it is fascinating from a retail perspective. Certainly, it's something that many people you know, in the 80s, the 90s didn't really think about. Many large retailers didn't even have an audio in-store program, but things are changing now that the world of non-traditional revenue certainly opening up to retailers as we enter 2022. Well, in our Looking Ahead segment, I could cop out and say I'm looking ahead to the entirety of 2022 and storylines there. You know, to start 2021, you think about it, supply chain issues were said to be maybe going away slightly as vaccines were on the horizon. I don't think supply chain was necessarily thought of as going to be something that was going to be top of mind in terms of constraints of retailers to begin the year. I know inflation was on a lot of people's minds, certainly that storyline panned out during 2021, but I'm not going to look ahead to the entirety of 2022 as a whole because, again, that's kind of a cop-out, and even though we are very much looking forward to what storylines will bear themselves out during this next year, I am looking ahead to retail real estate, specifically new capital entering the retail real estate world and what that means for retailers in specific. An article on Globestreet.com by Kelsey Marie Borland, who, by the way, is very prolific, and she is very much worth a follow on Globestreet.com if you're at all interested in the world of retail and retail real estate, noted that a lot of new capital is beginning to flow into retail because investors who have invested previously in multifamily and industrial have driven the cap rates so low, basically the rate of return, so low that they are looking now towards retail investments. And we're seeing this slowly spread throughout the country, really started, of course, along the coast, but now you're starting to see it bear out in the Sun Belt. And this article includes an interview with Ben Snyder, who's the EVP and National Director of Shopping Centers at Matthews Real Estate Investment Services. He's mentioned that basically what you're seeing is a lot of new money coming towards retail. The number of bidders on grocery anchored centers in particular, he saw more than double during 2021. Before the pandemic, he said eight to 10 offers, pretty typical for those grocery anchored centers. Now you're seeing 20 or more bids being the standard. Cap rates or rate of return looking from high 4% to the high 6% range now throughout the country, where both of those were easily one to two percentage points higher, rate of return being higher. So all of this due to, of course, the market being flooded with new investors. So you might be asking, well, Trent, that's interesting or maybe not so interesting, but how does that affect retailers? Well, here's the deal is you have these grocery anchored centers. People are purchasing them and getting a fairly low rate of return. So what happens when you get a fairly low rate of return on a property if you're an investor? Well, typically, not always, but typically you're looking to increase that return on investment. The easiest way to do that in a retail center, especially grocery anchored one, is to start charging those tenants more, especially in the non-grocery spaces. You know, you might have a Safeway or a Kroger or something else in the grocery space. Those are going to be inked for the next 15 to 20 years. Those are going to be relatively locked in. But you have a number of other retailers in the smaller adjacent spaces that might be leased up for one to three years. So this landscape of increased capital flowing into retail real estate, I feel like could really affect some of those mom and pop retailers, some of the smaller retailers, and even retailers like Pet Supplies Plus, for example, that make their home in these grocery anchored centers. And a feeling you're going to see 
retail rental rates go up as 2022 and 2023 progresses. So that's why I'm keeping an eye on it. How does this landscape really change the world of lease rates in retail? Do we see this coming from some of the larger REITs as well? The likes of Kimco, for example, that hold a number of grocery anchored centers. And what's that going to do? Is it going to have maybe a chilling effect on the smaller retailers? And what's going to happen to those retailers that often accompany those grocery stores in those centers? And again, you're not just talking about the mom and pops, but I mentioned Pet Supplies Plus, Dollar Tree, another retailer that's in a lot of those centers as well. So it could have ripple effects throughout the retail industry. Generally speaking, we've seen retail lease rates go up despite some of the softness you've seen in apparel-based centers, but certainly going to be keeping an eye on it as far as how it impacts retail balance sheets and how it impacts the types of retailers willing to move in. Might it push out retailers and maybe insert some service-oriented companies in those centers as well? We've already seen quite a bit of that over the last five years. So I think an interesting landscape to follow, certainly, over the next year or two. And we'll be watching those balance sheets closely as far as lease costs are concerned for retailers. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. For Layton, working behind the scenes, I'm Trent saying thank you for listening. We thank Paul Brenner for joining us coming up. On next week's episode, we'll be joined by Dan Surtees. He's with XC Commerce. He's going to talk a little bit about creating promotions platforms for apparel retailers, especially apparel retailers that have more than one brand, kind of the difficulty behind that, and what you really have to look to do if you're creating an effective promotions platform for apparel retailers in 2022. I think it's a fascinating concept. It's certainly Not something we talk a ton about here on the show, which is discount platforms or promotion platforms in apparel retail. So we hope you'll join us then and we'll see you seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.